listening to the Consequential Podcast. I'm Dave Convery, with me, Roger Hart. Hello. And not with us, again, unfortunately, Lucy Boys. Uh, we also don't have any dilettantish stand-ins this week. It's just us in a small room with a bottle of English wine. Yeah, we're not even, we're not in a fancy bar this time, we're not gallivanting, but we are drinking what we, what we I think what we both thought would be misery juice. It should, it should by all rights have been miserable, it is. It's, it's actually quite pleasant, so this is the, um, shall I just go straight into the podcast? Oh, just, wine? just do it, just, just, yeah. I, th- I think. So it's from East Anglia, I picked this up at the Cambridge Beer Festival, and it's um, Elysian Fields Bacchus, it's a um, fairly dry white. Uh, only 10.5%. Like yourself. Yes. Um, it's really quite tasty. It's It's got... There's, there's a there's a slightly iffy note, I think you called it petrolly, but above and beyond what you get with a, what you get with a Riesling. Oh. A little older flower, plenty of citrus. He's actually... He's, he's doing the full Oz Clark. He's taking gulps disguised mm. as sips that are being forced <laughs> at high pressure down the back of his throat. He's really... It's that pressure hose splash yeah, that really gets it you, You've got a couple of really fairly intricate coping mechanisms to hide your alcoholism in plain sight. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, tradecraft. Yeah. So what have you been reading? Um, well, the backs of wine labels, self-help leaflets. Whatever you wake up on, really. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's funny because it's true. I have been reading um, the Bajeffrey Saga, um, yes. Skim, the late, the I was going to say latest, not latest, the other book by the cousins Tamaki, um, Judge Dread Trifecta, Rat Queens, um, flipping through the latest Moon Knight, other scraps and oddments. Reread Desolation Jones last night. So Rat Queens, we've both read. Um, this this is it's not a smart book no. really but it's very funny it's a lot of bollocks um, basically it's uh, sort of set in a fantasy world but with contemporary dialogue and broadly contemporary concerns in the main characters yeah it's kind of a it, it's got one of those setups that I, well, you described it as like someone's D&D game gone horribly off the rails where You've got people who go on quests and adventures and are given quests and adventures. And this massively fucks up the world they're in and they're surrounded by just ordinary people trying to make a living while these absolute assholes yeah. get them besieged it's, by orcs. It's sort of explicitly constructed around people who who, who live in a world that operates like a role-playing game, like be that computer or mm. uh, D&D, and a whole bunch of people who genuinely resent these really quite rich, drunk idiots... Um, who come in and, you know, kill monsters, and then the backlash from that is is yeah. visited upon the, the the village because it's the real world essentially. And the you know the least worst thing is that they get pissed and brawl in the streets. And it's it's the story of the Rat Queens, a female band of adventurers. There's like there's what there's a sort of stoner pixie warrior elf wizard elf. I've lost track Goblin, of which is which. Goblin. I think there's a kind of Cthulhu cultist who doesn't really believe in the squid god, but still has the squid powers. That's quite charming. Um, other bits and pieces. It's not explicitly Cthulhu. In fact, it's probably explicitly not Cthulhu, but it's some kind of squid god. Um, yeah, it's, it's functionally Cthulhu. Yeah. 
it's fun. It's as you say, it's modern sort of modern sensibility. It's very very daft. Oh. I can't. I can't really think of anything to say about it beyond the fact that I really enjoyed it. Yeah, there's not all that much meat on the bones, but kind of in a good way. If you want a throwaway comic, again, that sounds too harsh because it is fun. If you want some very some like, if you want something that's designed to be fun, and is, hmm. then this is a fun comic that is fun. Yeah. This is it's it's it's, it's it sort of feels unfair to criticize it for not being something it isn't. It's yeah. it's well written. Like, it's actually, in terms of character, quite well drawn. Yeah, they, they have distinct voices. Um, um, it's not patronising, I don't think. Like, they're not... No, it doesn't feel too bad. So it, it, it could sort of suffer from male writer does female empowerment, but I think the character is sufficiently well fleshed out and kind of fuck-ups in their own way that it doesn't step into what feels to me like particularly patronising territory. Yeah, I mean, we're poorly qualified to make an informed assessment, assessment sure. of that, I guess, but it doesn't feel like the worst of strong female because characters. Because dongs. Yes. Yeah. Dongs. Because dongs. So, Skim... Um, fewer dongs. Fewer dongs. Well, you were raving about this one summer a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Well, this one summer is brilliant. Um, and Skim does a lot of the same things. So, this one summer, I, I reviewed on the blog, it's really good at the voice of childhood. It's really good at the subjective experience of seeing incompletely an adult world by degrees. And so it's got it's got the adults, the older teenagers, and the young teenagers, um, and it shows you their world in different ways. And it, it's it just it does it rather beautifully. It's got that lazy summer ambiance. Um, and Skim is a little bit different, but the talent set is the same. So it, the art feels a little less developed, it's a little less finessed. But it's, it's stylistically similar and it's, it's still very good. Um, the writing is probably as good. It's, it's the, um, the story of a teenage girl at, um, at high school, kind of last couple of years, I think. And it's, it's notionally her diary, which means it's got that sort of narrated overview vibe and means that she's able to kind of gloss herself as she goes. Uh, and she's recently broken her arm, I think. There's a wonderful opening where um, she's talking about the fact that she didn't get much sleep because she was up all night trying to take a good picture of her cast, but she's right-handed and she's broken her right arm, and how the hell do you take a picture of a cast? It's just sort of, it ties itself in these, these sort of little knots. Right. And then the idiom it uses to describe that as difficult, something like big deal or huge problem, then gets used really casually on the next page to also describe something quite serious. In yeah. That. So that, that sort of lack of knowingness. And the trajectory of it is kind of... She's got this notionally wise beyond her years, dismissive everything, ultra cool friend. And she's the sort of slightly shy one in her shadow. And it's kind of the... I keep saying kind of. It's somewhat the trajectory of them swapping. Right. The friend becomes more conventionally teenage, um, internalises more of the sort of... The, the, the trappings of being a, a caricature dumb teen, I guess. Um, and Skim becomes a bit more... A bit more worldly-wise, but in a very measured way. She understands... She understands that the wisdom beyond her years thing is bollocks and tries to construct what she can. And she, she potentially passes through depression, certainly a very bad patch. So the, the actual story is that the, um, 
boyfriend of one of the popular girls has just killed himself, and this sends ripples through the school, and there are whisperings that he might have been secretly gay or that something was going on. Um, the girlfriend is trying in her own way to cope with to cope with the grief and the, the complications of all this, and her friends rally around her in a deeply unhelpful way and basically make a hobby out of it. They sort of grief support and outreach and doing nice things work this together in a very heathersy way. There's there's quite a bit of heathers running through it. Right. Um, meanwhile, Skim begins what might be a relationship with her English teacher, so she's also dealing with some sexuality stuff. Sort of trippy, hippie chick, slightly caricature, not actually that well character sketched. But I think that's part of the point because she sort of alights on the Borrow surface of the story. Bits of things from other people um, and has taken on a yeah. persona that is yeah. not necessarily... And is, is such a slight sketch because although she intrudes very powerfully into Skim's emotional life, isn't very present and then disappears, leaves, and obviously this creates a massive absence and creates problems. So Skim is dealing with the world around her getting very strange at the same time as her teacher, Miss... Oh, I can't remember her name. Is it Miss Andrews? I, I don't know. Um, becoming part of and then exiting from her life. Um, you know, her friends are changing. There's, there's a wonderful, wonderful section towards the end where um, the friend gets a new boyfriend, uh, and just wonderful panel as she's she's chatting to her awful friends. That she becomes becomes friends with the popular kids, and, and Skim becomes friends with the rejected former most popular kid. She's decided so that there, there is this sort of trans- cultural transition stuff, trading in and out of popularity. Like, uh, oh yeah, yeah. He's 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 super open-minded and independent. More people should do that. <laughs> or super individual. You, you, you yeah. get the idea. It's it's full of these little little sketches of teen idiom that some of the characters are in on the jokes of their own ridiculousness, and some are not. And it it moves through the piece. But yeah, the tone very very good. Uh, I I can't recommend it enough. Excellent. So another strong recommendation for the various Tamakis. Yeah, I, they are they are nailing it. They are absolutely nailing it. Um, they give good Twitter as well. Uh, one of them is very very quiet, and the other is loud and broadly nonsensical. Excellent. So I think we'll uh, we'll gloss over trifecta for now because I suspect we'll come back to it in the main topic of the show, which is I sent blood in the business waters. Which is spies, not you talking shit. Although, let's be honest, on the Venn diagram, there's a fairly big overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Jeffrey Saga, which we were talking about last week, and I'm not sure I were we? Uh, well, not last. Yes, the last time because I because oh, uh, uh, yeah. we, we were talking about Englishness, and I was going on about it being a good representation. It's sort of like a loving version of Viz. Yeah, or it's occasionally quite soapy, but just. Mm. Oh god, the last one's terrible. The last one wasn't. The last one, yeah, that was sort of added for the book release. It's a sort of Big Brother spoof, and it works about as well as any Big Brother spoof does. I love the contrivance of it. Yeah, that they go through preposterous trajectories only to end up back together. That's delightful, but yeah. it's very crudely sketched. But the rest of it. Oh mm. uh, yeah, so the Jeffrey saga is the saga of the family Jeffreys, who are in some kind of nameless northern or midlands. Yeah, they're in they're in industrial town. Lots of terraces. In my head, it's Sheffield. It's something like yeah. Uh, And they're sort of they're supernatural creatures, I guess. Um, There's a vampire. There's a werewolf. 
the dad and the son are something vaguely ghoulish and possibly immortal. Grandad has evolved off this plane and is some kind of sticky, amorphous, yogsothothy thing with supernatural powers. The daughter is a super-evolved... Well, she's, she's superhuman in some unspecified way. She's super strong and super smart. I don't know if she's smart, but she's definitely very strong. She's smart in a totally non-self-knowing way, so she demonstrates massive mathematical faculty or whatever. She has a sort yeah. of completely total lack of social intelligence. Yes. There's a wonderful comic where she goes out dating according to the tips of Cosmopolitan, but has totally misunderstood sexuality. Yes, she sort of reads it as instruction, like as, as a sort of point-to-point manual. Mm. Um, well, she rocks up at some horrifying. stranger's door saying, we're going, out, we're going out clubbing, I need to have sex. Do I know you? No, but these tips said that I should bring a less attractive friend along so that to, draw, to draw attention. What? And then she tars and feathers her. Yes, it's just uh, very, very funny. Like, uh, yeah, the last story aside, just it's one of those things where the tone just works and the tone sells the whole thing. I originally thought the first would be the best of them, which is the council rent man, who is also a wonderful caricature, just constantly reciting in his head possible autobiography titles and self-aggrandizements, whilst at the same time being a man who sports a virulent erection from reading council rent back records. And there's a brilliant term for that as well. It's something, something like, like pyjama tenting or pyjama problem stirrings. Pyjama yeah. stirrings. Yeah, some pyjama movement, something mm. like that. It was, it was, it was excellent. But yes, the, the rent man arrives and tries to sort of chase them down and is totally baffled by them. And we, we see little moments in their lives. But the, the, a lot of the stories are great. Broadly speaking, they each get a story. So there's yeah. the rent man, which introduces all of them. There's... What is her name? The daughter? I can't remember any of their names. I can't remember. This is embarrassing. They're all the Bo Jeffries. That's fine. Um, the werewolf goes on. A, he works at a... Um, some sort of production some line. Some sort of production line. But it's wonderfully nameless. You see the sign and it's something like stutching, grinding and iron wangling. Or, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's got that sort of made-up Yorkshire thing to it. But... Um, <laughs> And the werewolf works on a works on a production line with a punk, a racist, various other people, and they go out on a works do. He forgets that it's a full moon, so it ends up turning into a werewolf, and that's the least worst thing that happens because it all kicks off with the racism. Yeah. And then the police turn up and arrest the only black guy. Yes. Which is just wonderfully bitter. Because everyone else is in a explicitly racist version of the Freemasons, or the Knights of St. Swithin, or something like that. Yeah. But... Um, the vampire one is just the vampire that section is just the vampire guy getting killed in a series or you know reduced to dust and reviving himself in a series of ways because he despises modern Britain it's yeah I, the vampire being sold hot cross buns at the corner shop is delightful it's just full of stupid little moments that are just fantastic there was one line that just um, start with me there's, there's sort of one that's done as a sort of holiday diary which mm. feels like something from Topper or uh, one of the sort of various comics that got subsumed into the Beano and the Dandy. Um, There's just a brilliant line where he's trying to guess the flavour of the, the the mystery gobstopper that he has received and he deduces that it is paraquat. <laughs> it's just uh, there's just brilliant cadence to it again yeah it's the whole the whole tone of the thing is fantastic the bat fishing we covered the bat fishing but that's that's brilliant yeah I think it may still be cheap as a digital version it's what we're last time up. I checked it was 150 on Kindle um, which is insanely good value 
Yeah, and um, there's a, I think a ten pound paperback that Knockabout yeah. Press have put out. So it's um, it's Alan Moore, isn't it? It's Alan Moore. Yeah, um, it's definitely worth picking up. It's something that he's done sort of over thirty years, just writing a little bit at a time. Oh, I, it, it all feels of so much of a period. I assumed it was something he did all in a block years ago. No, it's published all over the place. It's one of those things that just appeared now and then in sort of now long defunct um, British comics periodicals like Warrior and things like that. Um, yeah, all over the place. That's quite cool. So I've been reading the new Brian Lee O'Malley book. Um, Which is? Seconds by Brian Lee O'Malley. That's how you know it's by him. Um, so he's pretty much best known for Scott Pilgrim. And oh, that guy. That guy. Yeah, there you go. The Scott, Scott Pilgrim, Pilgrim guy. guy. Yeah. Um, and Seconds is sort of... <laughs> As Scott Pilgrim was to sort of self-interested people in their early 20s, Seconds is about self-interested people in their late 20s. Um, is he in his early 30s by any chance? Um, yeah, there's an element of that. So it's, um, it's, it's about a girl called Katie who's running a restaurant and uh, she wants to go on and get another restaurant. Before she leaves the first one, she finds magical mushrooms and a house spirit that together allow her to reverse bad decisions in her life and um, play them out again, um, sort of armed with foreknowledge and, and mm. able to uh, correct her path. Um, and being someone who is sort of fascinated in herself and obsessive enough as sort of a chef and in her own life mm. to try and generate the perfect life for herself and, and get back her lost love and create the perfect restaurant. It all goes horribly, horribly wrong and spirals out of control as she can continually overwrites things that she's got wrong in her life. Um, so as you can imagine, the central theme is about regrets and, uh, and, and how you approach sort of growing older with regrets and, and, um, things that you desperately wish you could change but can't. Um, Drinking, mostly. You do realise that on microphone you loudly announced what you were <laughs> drinking, how much you were enjoying it, you, you rhapsodised <laughs> about the thing that you were drinking, um, even though it is English wine <laughs> that you got in a tent. It was at a beer festival. That's a legitimate place to buy booze in a tent. As as the book sort of suggests, there there are there are no easy answers, but mm. you could um, maybe not drink so much. Is it any good? The book. Yes. I'm in two minds. Um, certainly, I mean, I I enjoyed Scott Pilgrim considerably more because it's designed to be entertaining. I have to someone like me with Scott Pilgrim. But you're meant to, and I think we've talked in the past about whether you're meant to regard Scott Pilgrim as the hero of the story or whether he is in fact a terrible human being well, and gets only marginally better over the over the period of the books. The fact that he's well sketched as a bit of a douche is not necessarily an object, an obstacle to to actually reading the damn thing. It's just kind of, what other attitudes does it offer above and beyond that? And sometimes it offers the attitudes that look at this douche, and sometimes it validates him where I feel feel it perhaps could do well not to. 
So this is broadly similar. It's a, it's a character who is essentially sympathetic, but self-destructive and really quite awful in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, she's probably someone that you would try to avoid. Um, I mean, it sounds like the kind of, well, sort of person I spent a lot of my mid-twenties with. Yeah, I would um, I would qualify it and say that it is it is uh, an interesting book. It's not necessarily making any points that aren't made elsewhere better. Um, it's it's definitely interesting to see someone do a sort of very consciously more mature take on things that they've done before. Mm. So there was a he had one book before Scott Pilgrim, which was Lost at Sea, which is. Um, Slightly, it's it's a more introspective thing, despite it being about uh, a teenager. Um, I look forward to a series about a thwarted sex pest in a nursing home. There is a certain element of writing four years earlier, um, but Lost Lost at Sea, I think, is actually more interesting than Seconds. But it's it's still worth reading. I think it's definitely worth reading for people who enjoyed Scott Pilgrim as an exercise in seeing what happens next in terms of Brian Lee O'Malley's writing yeah it's not something I can it sounds fun I can't I can't leap out and wholeheartedly recommend it what does it look like um so don't say a book it looks um it's it's a similar sort of manga inspired style to Scott Pilgrim it's a lot less dynamic in, in terms of sort of motion because it's not about fight scenes or anything like that but there's mm. more attention paid I think to layout um, colouring is beautiful it's this uh, sort of slightly radiant flat colouring and okay. it's really does he do his own? Nice. no um, there's a quite a large team of people worked on it so it's him a second artist uh, a colourer uh, a flatter and uh, interestingly, Dustin Harbin, who's sort of reasonably famous in his own right in indie comics, did the lettering. Um, so there's sort of a team of minor indie comics superstars worked on the thing. Um, uh, and I think that's in part because he injured himself, just, All right. just did bad things to his shoulder just by having basic artist posture throughout. Um, and so it's a year late because he it's injured himself. a combination himself. of hunched over and then racked with spasms from all the amphetamines presumably yes a basic artist not him that's not a specific slur I know very little about his drug habits oh I'm just assuming that you know if you're a full time artist you're taking at least something full time artists please do do let us know what drugs you're on honestly not assuming that I Roger is not a narc Roger will not (laughs) sell you out for cash (laughs) Which he will then use to buy English wine from suspicious people in a tent. <laughs> oh, they weren't that suspicious. They had a spreadsheet. So I've been reading Nothing Is Forgotten. You wouldn't believe the amount of time I spend cutting pregnant pauses down to appropriate lengths. Because whilst I do use them to punish you, they don't necessarily make for good listening. Um, and I think a shorter pregnant pause is, is just enough that people know that you have been punished <laughs> and that you know you've done wrong. Oh, as we established with that discussion about all the wet work in the 80s, I'm bad at learning that I've done wrong. Mm. No morals. 
none whatsoever will work for the Contras. They pay. So I've been reading Nothing Is Forgotten, um, which uh, is a collection of Ryan Andrews' work, and it's all stuff that's been published online before. Ryan Andrews is just brilliant. Uh, he's the name is bringing a kind of distant cognitive jangle, but I'm short on specifics. He does a lot of um, short stories. So I think probably the best known one is um, Sarah and the Seed, which mm. is available online, which is the story of a sort of elderly couple who've been childless their whole lives and then suddenly there's a seed, a gigantic seed and uh, the, the husband becomes very frightened of it and, and the wife wants to protect it because this is you know, her offspring and it's, it's a very unsettling story but... Um, Have you read that Ted Hughes poem about finding a fox on Chalk Farm Bridge? No. Sounds a bit like that. It's quite weird. Um, there's... Um, and that's one of the ones that's in there. There's another one um, about a, a, basically a, a goose strike on a suburban family's roof and what this blood-strained... Uh, uh, impact or industrial action? Impact. Geese aren't unionised. Why not? They're not socialists. Geese are, in, geese are implicitly libertarian. No one told me I feel better about eating so many of the cunts. But it's stories like that. There's always a, a sort of a small hook and a short story. And um, there was a Kickstarter to put a bunch of these into a really nicely produced paperback. Oh, cool. In fact, I think this is the second time it's run, essentially, as a sales mechanism. Mm. And it's beautiful. But I'll, I'll link to some of the online versions in the, um, uh, in, in yeah. the show notes. There's some of them that work slightly better online. There's one that has a sort of recursive theme that works better if... Uh, if you view it online because it does some quite clever things with the way that it links around to various points in the story. Um, um, Any interesting stylistic details? I honestly don't know how to describe it. Um, it's it's a very, very... It's, it seems to be digital first. It's quite mm. sketchy and it's done with sort of a lot of layered textures. But I honestly wouldn't even know where to begin to describe it. I don't have the vocabulary to, to describe it other than it would is you, beautiful. Would you say it was undescribable? No. No, I'm calling myself an idiot deliberately. Um, there's another one of his as well, which I think has just been taken down from Gumroad, which is called This Was Our Pact, which is um, a fantastic short story about a bunch of kids cycling out to see where the lanterns that are dumped into the river in a local lantern festival end up mm. and it seems like it's going to be quite a charming if prosaic story about the nature of friendship and then it takes a detour um, and that's being I sort think, of shades of stand by me it certainly feels a little bit stand by me to start with and then it winds up going somewhere else entirely something sort of quite supernatural um, but that's been picked up by picked up by a publisher and it's coming out as a recolored version next year. It's a great title. It's great. It's a really nice little book. Mm. Um, again, it's one of those things I think that I want to read that. does good things with authentic childhood voices. Mm. Um, there's uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's such a slight thing that anything would spoil it. But it's it's. I wonder if I enjoy that really. so much because I didn't have one. What a childhood. And particularly an authentic childhood voice. You've always been this, essentially. It's been more or less this shite end to end. 
this is what happens when you're grown in a lab. Yeah, then packed off to public school with, you know, kick up the arse of thesaurus and a case of wine. Oh, that went to a dark place. Do you know what else went to a dark place? Moon Knight. Yeah, a little bit. You, have, you been, have you been to Segway Camp? I, I want it on record that I just let him prattle on for about ten minutes about something. He was, he was, you know, talking about authentic childhood voices. And he was doing lots of hand gestures. I just let him <laughs> fucking go on. Me this is I, what happens when we don't have Lucy here to sort us out. No, well, we don't know that. You're, you're a prick then as well. It's just sometimes you're being a prick to her rather than me. Yeah, but she'll shout at either of us. True. Um, Warren Ellis and Declan Charvey's run on Moon Knight's wrapped up. Because yeah, they are, in a slightly odd way. Yeah, it's sort of... Um, so we've, we've been praising this quite a lot. Because it's, it's been a fun series. Um, it's had good is, covers, it's had great design. It's been very Warren Ellis, but in the good ways. Yeah, it sort of felt like planetary in the way that it's visited a different genre each uh, each issue um, without, you know, having a massive cast in the same way. I mean, it's kind of what if Desolation Jones were Batman. I think that's fair, yeah. Um, Although I do have Desolation Jones on the brain because I reread it last night. I think that's probably that um, Warren Ellis is kind of the tropiest writer who ever troped a trope. Um, there's a lot of... And that's one of his, like, three or four go-tos. Yeah, there's a lot of repetition in, in his work. Um, so this is, yeah, it's a slightly downbeat ending to their run on it. And it, it, I'm not sure whether I'm interested in continuing this beyond them. I wasn't until I saw the typographical panel design and guttering conceit. And I definitely want to read the first one to see what they do with it from a design perspective. As a standalone series that hasn't done masses with the character, I'm, I've really enjoyed it. There's been lots of weird little things. It's been used. Each each issue has basically been high concept. Mm. Essentially, what if Moon Knight was in the raid? What if Moon Knight fought ghosts? Um, I love the Dreamscape one. That's beautiful. That was fantastic. I do want to read the raid one. I saw. I read the online preview, and it was fun. Yeah, it's just, you know, there have been various films in recent years like Dread and The Raid where someone starts at the bottom of a building and clears it by going up. And the, the virtuoso sequence in Old Boy. Yeah, it reminded me of Old Boy a bit as well. God, I love the Dread movie. Maybe more than I should. Probably more than you should. It's, it's a solid film. But, yeah, um, I'm sure that Marvel's production team listened to us uh, constantly. <laughs> Um, but Moon Knight, the, the artwork by Declan Shelby and Geordie Belair is so good, it just needs to be put out in one of the giant format ones that they've done for uh, I, I would love I would love one of the big sexy hardbacks for that. Yeah. I the, really would. It, it would. it would lend itself very, very well. They'd need to be very careful about the ink. Like the, the, the black-white balance is where it all happens. Get on that, Marvel people. But no, it's such an odd, an odd little thing. The final one. Can we talk about it? Is it too spoilery? No. So basically, it revisits a character from the first issue who is a sort of downtrodden cop, and he is downtrodden one time too many by essentially his his nominal authority being passed over to this hooded lunatic. Um, and he, and let's not beat about here. You know, Moon Knight is a nutter. He's, the, he's guy, the guy is insane. entitled. Is entitled to be upset. Yeah. Yeah, he's—he's. He's, I mean, he's actually—he's insane by his own admission. Mm. 
The guy um, is not entitled to do what he goes on to do, but... No, just to borrow an old supervillain's... Uh, well, he just dresses in black, really. Um, he dresses himself up as a black Moon Knight. The, 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 trains himself. The idea is to murder Moon Knight and replace him in some kind of bizarre, capricious manner. In doing so, driving himself mad. Mm. Um, and the entire thing sort of follows his point of view. Not wholly successfully, because there's not really enough to hang off the character. But essentially the whole thing is there to make one fairly... Uh, one point about Moon Knight as a character that I would have thought was fairly clear from the other ones, which is that he has no one that cares for him um, mm. anymore, which I would have thought was obvious from the fact that they didn't bring back any supporting characters whatsoever. Or that he particularly cares for. And the whole comic is trawling through some people on his periphery and saying, nah, I don't talk to him anymore. So as a, as a setup for the next team, fine. But it doesn't feel like the sort of... It doesn't feel like the punctuation mark I was expecting mm. at the end of a run that's been fairly um, big and brash. Yeah. I mean, there's no arc to resolve, so you were never going to get arc resolution fireworks. But they could have done something. They decided to do something quiet. I think I respect it. But um, it wasn't what I was expecting at all. No. So this week, we're talking about spy comics. Yeah, in a sort of ad hoc way, because basically I started reading Trifecta and then we thought we'd talk about spies. Yeah, so I have, I have no central thesis here. I think this is really just going to be a rundown of some genuinely entertaining comics. Hmm. So, Well, here's an observation. This could just be colouring of my reading rather than an objective survey of the literature. No, please. But I, in the spy comics I've read, it's definitely more more Bond than Le Carre. It, there's the theatre and the pantomime so, is a go-to. I, yeah, I, I, have a th- I have a theory about that. But first of all, let's, let's define the sort of wider sort of spy archetypes that we're working with. And you're going to do that because you read a lot more of this shit than I do. Sure, so this is going to miss a few things. You're but... kind of obsessed with Bond. I am, and I periodically have to interrogate that because it's fucking stupid. Um, anyone who's interested in Bond or interested in why people like Bond or why Bond is such a thing for the British, um, I would strongly recommend reading um, Simon Winder's book, The Man Who Saved Britain, which just skewers the stupidity of it and is also a sort of revert, like inverse anti-hagiography of Ian Fleming. The first third is basically, here's how much of a cunt Ian Fleming was. Right, now given that, here's the horrible shite that he wrote. Here's how petty and venal down-at-the-heel 1960s Britain was and why they so psychologically needed this shitheel. It's, um, it's pleasingly savage. But the, co- the core thesis of that is that um, Bond was a power fantasy reaction to Britain having had the shit kicked out of it, both manifestly and psychologically. Uh, and so a piece of sort of voyeuristic tourism, this fantasy that the lone Englishman the lone gent could still stand against the world, with, all, with a bunch of sneery class prejudice instantiated in it, but with that is a certain degree of glitz and fun which attracted me as a child. So I got in on the ground with Bond, and that led me to a love of spy stories before I really understood why. And once I started to understand how grubby and grimy the Bond stuff was, I sort of I came close to rejecting it and then developed an almost pantomime love of it. 
And in, in the same time, I'd also picked up some other stuff. So you've got you've got the Bond stuff, which is lone, often British, bro, rogue asshole with pantomime sci-fi tropes and accoutrements goes and solves a supervillain problem. Very rarely does any actual spying. He's he's an antagonist. He Bond is a terrible spy. Bond is just the worst spy. I think that's been commented on because he walks oh. up to people, tells them their name, has dinner with them. Wanders around their hideous fort complex thing for quite a long time, um, whilst he and the villain trade sort of barbed insults while maintaining a homoerotically charged respect yes. for one another. So on the page, what's actually happening there structurally is that Bond projects the sort of phallic insecurity version of Englishness into the space. We should have used that phrase last week. That would have been a, a good time to but use. Bond that. in the villain's lair is the kind of everything the Daily Mail, re- the quivering, wanking Daily Mail reader dreams of being as he climaxes, um, projected into the lair of the pariah. Bond, on the page, Bond villains are often either physically deformed, deformed or racially different. They're often non-conformant to reactionary conservative ideas of Englishness. Um, Sometimes it's particularly bad. Let live and let die feels grim. But that's just as bad on screen as on the page. Um, uh, Well, on the page, whatever. But the the, the movies are are a little bit more nuanced because they kind of had to be because they were later, or at least some of them were. And me saying that Bond movies are more nuanced should tell you quite how grubby some of the books are. That is terrifying. There's there's Bond, and characters like Bond, and things issued from the Bond tradition, and it's lots of look to camera and quipping, and it's it's pantomimey. And then there's late Bond, which is basically like a current Bond, which is basically born. Yeah. Which is the, the the current the current version of that spy, and that's it's a different culture's power fantasy. It's it's America's inadequacy power fantasy. It's the nothing will ever be okay again, we will react brutally, these are the moral compromises we will make. Violence, fetishization. It's, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's one ordinary Joe is, is magically all-powerful because projection of the good bits of the power of the military-industrial complex. But, oh, look at the bad bits, look at these horrible compromises. Um, There's still a lot more actual espionage in the Bourne films than there is in Bond. Yes, although they're they're objectively massively bad. Have you ever seen Haywire? No. It might be my favourite spy movie. It's very quiet. Female lead, not that badly played. Um, Structurally the same as a Bourne film. Female mercenary, double-crossed, state job. Gets her own own back on her boss, who was also her boyfriend, although that turns out not to really matter. but lots of actual spying and tradecraft, lots of actual doing things, but with that slightly born style. Does it predate the born moves? I'm not sure. Um, gritty action style. Um, and then you've got the, the more Le Carre, particularly early Le Carre style stuff, which is... And there are loads more types of espionage fiction. There are, there are loads more, but the ones that are sort of very prominent at the moment, I would say born, Bond, and Smiley. Yeah. Um, the Smiley stuff is... Part of it is tea and biscuits, part of it is very old-school tradecraft, but the thing that I find terribly compelling about 
some of Le Carre's world, particularly the Carlos cycle of the Smiley novels, uh, is... So I'm going to pull this back to comics for a second, desperately. <laughs> Do it! Go on. Um, Judge Dredd Trifecta is a Smiley-style mole hunt. Yep. Featuring a character called Judge Smiley. It's not subtle, and yet I missed that on first read. Well, you, I think at the time you were less familiar with the Le Carre stuff? Mm, no. Oh, right, I assume you first read it ages ago. No, it only came out last year. Hmm. Well, it, it came out in 2012, and I first read it in trade um, in 2013. All right, it feels older somehow. Although it can't feel much older, because Siberia is, what, our age? Yeah, about that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's it owes a debt to, in, in many ways to Tinker Taylor um, and plays out with, with some similar tones but what it, the thing it glaringly doesn't have and the thing that therefore makes it look like it's using Le Carre flashcards rather than being a Le Carre homage um, is this sense that the st- in, in the Carla novels the stakes on the outside are so insanely high the fucking Cold War yeah um but the actual story we're told is grubby and minimal and personal. It's people with drinking problems being shitty to each other. It's petty office politics. It's tiny emotional connections and... George, he was like a father to me. It's, it's people lying... It, um, one of the most... What, some of the rather more aching bits in um, Smiley's People. You encounter all of these people who distantly remember Max, who is a disposable identity for Smiley that he is required to assume again. And Max has been this massive factor in the lives of these emigre agents. Mm-hmm. And it just, bits of it kind of hurt. And then you have grubby pornographers. And the, the entire, the crucible of this horrendous global nonsense is tiny and petty and personal. And it reflects in both directions. So in the early ones, it kind of is a projection of that, but also of British irrelevance in the face of it. And in the later ones, it's moved on. We're in kind of glasnost and perestroika and all of that jazz. It's it's the old it's the old school, and yet it's still current in the same grubby ways. We're heading into signals intelligence rather than humans intel- human intelligence, but we still have to play out the rest of the drama. Um, Trifecta and, and the, the sorry the the, the Lacari stuff has that wonderfully. Trifecta borrows the trappings but the stakes are visibly high this is about Mega City 1 has been brought to its knees in the previous storyline yeah and now even more shit is going down it's the stakes the stakes being visibly higher stops some of the tea and biscuits culture stuff from happening and makes them look like window dressing it well because they are I mean on the other hand in and of itself it's brilliant yeah they were always going to do it their own way because it's 2000 AD and 2000 AD lives on the borderline of actually being what it says on the tin, being parody and being self-parody. Yes. Um, and it negotiates... <laughs> and actually, Judge Dredd, the three stories, Judge Dredd actually being what it says on the tin, yeah. being parody, the simping detective, yeah. being self-parody, Dirty yeah. Frank... Yeah, so if, for anyone who's not familiar with this, there are storylines that they'd never said were connected in any way. Um, and these, these three stories eventually sort of tied in together with various, uh, with an enormous wide-ranging conspiracy and someone directing an attempt to flush out whoever was 
in charge of this conspiracy, which turns out to be a really, really bad joke around the uh, name of an old rock band. Um, just to which add, I totally missed. Add layers of ridiculousness to the top of it. Um, it doesn't help that. It, it's one of those. It, it's definitely a how done it more than a who done it. To an extent, it's there are some so obvious that the villain is the villain. The mechanics of the villain's plot are not clear. Yes. Um, so it can't be. I mean, if you wanted a straight take on um, uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, you're not going to get that because they, they just can't quite do that. Oh, and I'm not asking them to. Um, I, I, God, Traffic was just so much fun. Mm. It's a very different thing. So you've not really read much 2008 at all? No, only handfuls here and there. And it worked for you? Yes. I was a bit worried about the... Um, entry cost about sort of assumed knowledge and what have you and I did have to skip through Wikipedia to catch the Chaos Day stuff because it's so invested the aftermath of the Chaos Day stuff makes it possible yeah but it explains as it goes particularly also I think because 2080 is short is quick fire storytelling they've got very good at getting people in they've got very good at explaining where they need to explain the this is the thing so in, in older days it was sort of exposition heavy and now they have They've got really good at recapping without it feeling like wading through a page of exposition, three more pages, and now you've got to wait two weeks for the rest of the story. The hardest part was um, the simping detective, the Spiria section, because he's so close to the street. The tropes of Mega City felt like more more like assumed knowledge. On yeah. the other hand, he's doing something so innovative with them. Uh, so this is this is the guy, effectively a pastiche film noir detective dressed as a clown who's an undercover judge. Yeah, he's a. Um, in investigating the Church of Sympology, which is, you know, essentially the main religion in uh, Mega City One, and based around the idea that living in this future dystopia will drive you mad, so why not just go first and have it your own way? Mm. Um, which is quite nice, but of course it exists in the world of Judge Dredd, so it's completely corrupt. And it's it's superficially a bit more involved, but again, it. it what I realised very quickly was that. It doesn't matter. Um, point the detective will yeah. will explain the bits that matter, and the rest window the rest of the, the rest of the window dressing can afford to be baffling. It's written more of a sort of Dashiell Hammett pastiche, yes. so there is much more room for doing crude exposition in that voice. Mm. And the, whereas the Dirty Frank section is massively more accessible, but also massively dafter. Yeah, Dirty Frank is is uh, another undercover judge who's been driven mad by the machinations of his uh, his overseers, who are ostensibly the good guys. Um, he's basically a, a bum. He saves the world whilst wandering around in his pants, talking about himself in the third person, and it's glorious. Um, so this is one of the great things that comic spy comic spy stories do. You have this ridiculous thing, which has, has come to it probably by the idea of doing pastiche, but actually does the mole hunt stuff quite well. Mm. Um, and then you've got an absolute range from sort of really, really hardcore Lacarrie influence stuff like um, The Coldest City by Anthony Johnson. Which I still it, haven't read that. It's um, so again, it's it's a very familiar setup. It's basically it's the end of the Cold War. Um, all of the agents are being called home from Berlin 
um, and one of them is in a debriefing being dragged over the coals over the details of a clusterfuck on the sort of last operation when nothing should ever have gone wrong because the Cold War is over. Yeah. Um, and have you read Ian McEwan's The Innocent? No. It's horrible, but it's similar. So I had a slight problem with it in that it looks to be going in a certain way and then it just does. Mm. Um, so I have you know, a problem with the uh, the latest Nick Huckleberry. You've got you've got two people doing um, doing unreliable narrators. So you've got you know you, you've got someone who's trying to probe the other character in in terms of the debriefing, and then you've got someone who may or may not be telling the truth at various points during the debriefing. And it goes to some obvious places, but it's quite nicely done, and it's quite it's sort of redolent of that era. Mm. Um, as, as you said, sort of the end of sort of human intelligence and moving into sort of signal work. Mm. Um, and then right at the other end of the scale, you've got something like Casanova yeah. um, by Matt Fraction and uh, Gabriel Barr and Fabio Moon alternating on the various volumes. Um, which the art was a real barrier for me with that. I, I couldn't really get traction on it somehow. So I, I really like it. I mean, I love Day Tripper, which was the two of them. Mm. Um, and Casanova just draws heavily on comics history of spy stuff. So when we first introduced the character, he's basically dressed as Modesty Blaze, yeah. which uh, is sort of really, really long-running Bond-esque um, fisticuffs and, and gunplay spy stuff. Um, but that ran in newspapers in the UK for a very, very long time. God, I forget that that ran in the papers. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a newspaper strip. There's, um, there's a lovely bit in Warren Ellis's uh, Secret Avengers run, um, which, again, very much like Moonlight, one-offs, um, little short stories, and there's a thing where Black Widow has to go back through time and, and mm. avert disaster. And when she's in the 60s, it all jumps into three-panel strips in the style mm. of Modesty Blaze. Um, which kind of does nothing for the story, but it's just a lovely, neat little touch. There's um, Ellis doing past espionage, so there's the... Um, oh, God, what's the character called in Planetary, the, the Bond analogue? John something. Um, I always read him as a Nick Fury analogue that had little bits of Bond in him. Mm-hmm. Um, but... But that's got, that's got the sort of the wonderful... 60s mad science spy stuff yeah which is very very much um, volcano bases and stupid technology and yeah miniskirts there's the um, if you actually read the shield stuff from the 60s you get um, they've, they've obviously they can do whatever the fuck they want because it's on the printed page and they can mm. come up with whatever they, whatever they want and so you have panels of Nick Fury gloating because he's got an invisible car and James Bond doesn't have an invisible car Turned out that that wasn't a good idea in Bond either, mm. um, but it took forty years to get to that point. Well, that whole comics have an infinite budget to the limit of the artist's patience thing is both a blessing and a curse. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't great. Mm. Um, but obviously, I mean, so going back to the sixties, Modesty Blaze is obviously hugely influenced on a lot of mm. things, um, and. Jim Stranko, the run on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that he did was hugely influential on comics in a lot of ways. I think um, 
the imitation Storanko shield cover is is kind of the American Gothic of comic book parodies. It's been mm-hmm. done absolutely to death. Um, yeah. Uh, I have the same sort of visceral oh fuck not again reaction to that that I do to another keep calm and carry on poster uh, but brilliant of the time I mean S.H.I.E.L.D. in particular was just obviously trying to compete with the very first Bond films um, yeah. and just hugely inventive and ridiculous and completely over the top um, but still in that sort of um, super villains um, secret bases the sort of kids' playset version of yeah. what a spy story should be. Well, it's not just that. It's so one of the other, particularly with Bond, one of the things you have to bear in mind is um, there's that. There's the high fantasy stuff, and then there's the plausible opulent stuff. Um, flying casually, yeah, taking a plane like it's no big deal in 1960, not much. Um, travel to otherwise exotic... Like, Goldfinger opens in Miami. Yes. Um, and then is set in Switzerland and Kentucky. Uh, both on screen and on page. And those are, you know, those are those are non-trivial... Those are places an audience would probably not have been able to go. They're places a readership would not have been able to go, necessarily, unless they live nearby. There's casual exoticism and, you know... There's a grotesque sequence at the beginning of um, Goldfinger on the page where Bond goes out to a, um, a, cl- a crab restaurant. He, he goes to a, a crab cookhouse, or possibly lobster, with an American businessman, and they slather themselves in melted butter and eat crustacea. And it's basically wealth pornography for down-at-the-heel 60s Britain. Um, and that plays through in, in lots of other bits and pieces of, of that kind of narrative. Even on screen, and the comic comics don't so much do that, although they could if they wanted to. I think one of the weirdest examples of that is in the early '80s when you had the arcade boom. You have elaborate pain-causing video games mm. in Bond. You know, even things that are starting to creep into the public sphere are just that one doesn't count. bigger, better, and weirder in Bond. But no, it doesn't. Um, God, it's miserable. Mind you, like so many of them are. I I love those movies, but most of them are terrible. You got problems. I did. I did. But Casanova, which I think is wonderful, um, and I'm going to make you reread because uh, when it came out, you were as uh, as you described taking comics very seriously. I was a poor faced weekend. Um, and Casanova's not really that. It's so big and so weird, and it incorporates lots and lots of sixties Marvel in that. Mm. There's a big sort of multiverse um, there is in fact a sexy Modoc in a little uh, ringlet wig um, there are giant uh, I imagine that's what your dreams look like yeah basically there's um, so there's, there's, there's a giant you know there's giant Japanese robots and there's mm-hmm. tons and tons of stuff from the 60s and the bad guy is probably David Bowie um, so. and the good guy as, in as far as they exist is Mick Jagger it's just, yeah, it's that thing where it sort of takes a lot of cultural touchstones of things that are big and brash and, and you know them and these are things of opulence and brilliance and just throws them into a blender with a bunch of stuff you will never ever guess because Matt Fraction's brain is weird. Given that at the time I would happily read Fell and would not read Casanova, I think it's safe to say that I snapped the fuck out of it and should go back and try again. You probably should, yeah. But there's, I, I don't feel I have any grand thesis about espionage and comics um, except 
something I'm going to dangle out as a, as, a, as a little thing. Dangle away. So one of the things I like about espionage as a thing in fiction is both is the liminality, the, the kind of... the de- Depending on what type of story it is, something that looks bad being good, something that looks good being bad, the establishment playing dirty, all of that jazz. So you've said um, liminality. I'm going to get bingo cards made up because you... You are basically a cadence away from me getting full house. You had instantiation earlier, so that is that is that is bingo. That is that is Rogers, Rogers blank words. Um. So you get this this a lot of espionage stories are kind of about secret power in crisis. Yeah. So a successful a successful black ops thing might be a nice pre-title sequence, or if it's succeeded despite adversity, it might play out like a heist movie. In which case, it's still fun, um, and you've got all of the fun of something like a heist movie. But something like a mole hunt, something like some of the Bond stuff, like Bond, you can view as sort of shit heist movies. Um, they're often more fun from the villain's perspective, which is one of the reasons Skyfall is such a delight. The Secret power in crisis is sort of the motivating scenario for a lot of espionage narratives. But, um, this is this is a semi-extensible hypothesis. I couldn't really defend this that hard if I was pushed. But and that that exposes also, and you can use that as a lens to view what the state is, what your default normal is, what your power structures are, what will they do to achieve what, what will they do in a crisis, um, what does. What does an esta- the edifice of establishment secret outcrops tell you about its actual underpinnings, and and the the people involved and, and all of that? Yeah. And I, I see that in in espionage on the page, the, the, the prose page, and I see it sometimes on the screen, and I see it less in comics, which I think seem, in my limited experience, more inclined to give themselves to the fireworksy bond end of things. That's yeah. I mean, that's certainly almost, certainly true to an extent, at least in terms of the things that are very very visible. Um, there's a lot of stuff that does sit in the more in the grubbier end, in the sort of just people fucking around with each other, and this stuff is sort of nominally there. So there's um, there's there's things like Queen and Country, um, which is more sort of into the into that. Uh, grubby world of person-on-person hitmen or, you know... Well, mind management is actually full-on intricate establishment or black ops in crisis. Um, It just happens to be fireworks as well. It is. um, But it's also, at least as far as I've read, um, a very self-contained thing that is very, very heavily borrowed from Joseph Conrad. Yes. And ironically, not the secret agent, but far more from, yep, from Heart of Darkness. Um, in that, I mean, structurally, the story is very, very similar. Interestingly, um, have I have I ranted about this before? Heart of Darkness originally appeared as part of a link collection of three called The End of the Tether. I think somehow in a podcast on comics, we have not gotten to Joseph Conrad that much. Mm. Um, it doesn't inform that much. The the heart of darkness that people know and the informed on apocalypse now is is still broadly the same. But you kind of you gain a little bit. You don't miss anything by not doing this, but you gain a little bit by reading the whole collection. It's three short stories told by travellers on a ship heading up harbour. Um, 
and the first one is called The End of the Tether. So the original Polish collection, I believe, was called The End of the Tether and Other Stories, but it's best known for Heart of Darkness. Right. Um, and they're all about that kind of desperation and dissolution. So it's kind of a Canterbury tale, but for bastards. Yes, right. and much, much shorter. I think one thing that we uh, definitely should mention, because it's a recurring theme and it's an author we keep coming back to, is that Warren Ellis writes a lot about what happens to spies when they're used up. Yes, I mean that's Which is, the underpinning conceit of entirely Desolation Jones and substantially yeah. global frequency. And Red. Um, Red Which again I'm is not. the same. I, I'm very close to breaking the uh, prohibition on sound effects to put a little drum fill in there, a little... A little badum tish, uh, I think would go well with that. Um, it's it's a short story on Avatar Press, um, and it's oh, again, it's basically someone. Uh, it's it's an agent who's burned out, and they uh, eventually send someone sends a team to kill them, but they're you know too good in that Warren Ellis way. Um, and it was made into a slightly disposable but fun action film with uh, Bruce Willis and Helen Mirren. And Helen Mirren. Yeah, as the sort of um, uh, sort of Ice Queen XMI6 oh, secret agent turned hitman. Yes, I wanted to see that, but I didn't get around to it. I should watch it. It bears no relation to the comic whatsoever, but it's mm. quite good fun. Um, but yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of those. And Desolation Jones is one we've mentioned a few times, which will probably not be one that people know because really, I thought people did know about that. Desolation Jones kind of... Sank of off the, second, the second one got two issues in and then didn't continue. It looked like it was going to be great but very different, but a lot of people didn't like it. Um, so Desolation Jones was originally published on Wildstorm in 2005 when Wildstorm mm. was a thing. Um, and oh it, God, it's beautiful. It got sucked up into DC Comics and I don't, even, mm. I don't know if it's even in print anymore because of the way that Wildstorm got folded in and... Yeah, as you say, it's brilliant. It, it, it's beautiful. It's Warren Ellis and J.H. Williams III. And With a few exceptions, I would argue that it's better drawn than it's written. No, probably. I mean, it's... J.H. Uh, Williams III. We're calling him J.H. from now on. It takes mm. too long. Um, I mean, he's just he's an excellent artist. He does amazing stuff with his layouts. Mm. Um, and Desolation Jones lets him play with so many styles. So Jones is the... The, the, the core conceit is that Jones is... a an ex-spook that had something horrifying done to him called the Desolation Test. Um, we never totally find out what it was, but we know that it involved him being continuously awake and probably tortured for a year. Yeah, at the very least pumped full of chemicals that keep yeah. him awake. Um, and he's marooned in L.A. L.A. is an open prison for washed-up spooks. From all the governments. Yeah. And he set himself up as what we initially think is a private eye in that community but turns out to be kind of a vengeful spirit I guess he really hates it when they fuck with each other so there's a sequence where he's beating the living shit out of someone and saying I was hired to investigate this matter a mistake has been made I just kill people but I am not an unfair man so I will merely beat you yeah he's um. but he, yeah he's sort of the the fixer for, the, for that community yeah. I mean he sort of fulfills there's another person who's been experimented on and she was meant to be sort of the oh, grand yes. seductress but something went wrong and instead she uh, the pheromone response that they were looking for and triggers the sort of arachnid fear response and people feel like they're surrounded by giant fucking spiders and want to get out of there mm -hmm. and Jones is the only person who can put up with this and um, 
is her emotional support, essentially. Yeah, and it's... I don't want to say it's in the Bond mould, because it's not, but it's definitely in the antagonise and explode mould rather than the tradecraft mould. Yeah. Uh, it's tremendous fun. It's, oh, God, the colour, the, the visual design. It's just gorgeous. It's got some great lines. Jones, watch Bukake with me. Everything goes better with Bukake. Yeah. And so even, I mean, Warren Ellis is basically in the late... He's playing. He's in the playing. late, um, sort of, early 2000s had... The late early 2000s, that's a phrase we're using from now on, um, had... Like a cottage industry of writing about former spooks, yeah. And even then, it ran the gamut from something quite sci-fi, quite sci-fi influenced, quite quite Ballardian. Mm. Uh, I would I would say with well, Desolation Jones, the second run was all about the secret manuscripts of Philip K. Dick. Yeah, there's, and it was set in L.A. Like, come on, this is basically kung fu of million sands. Yeah, and and but then there's something like Red, which is fairly straightforward and. There's that horrible thing that he did with the magic UV torch that let you see people's thoughts because that was the oh, contrivance. Oh, I forgot of, about that. It wasn't a very good book. Oh, God, it I really wasn't. About that. What was that even called? I can't was remember. It I, I spent a shitload of money on that thing. Um, it was like eighteen pounds. Really? For one issue. Yeah. I just refused to buy it. Yeah. Well, I, the, I particularly enjoyed that. The same time he was doing that, or shortly after, or shortly before, I can't remember which. He was also doing Fell, the experiment in like short form, and we were flogging those for a quid. Yeah. That was. Uh... Yeah, Casanova was in there too. I actually kind of liked Feld. I know you didn't. No, it's fine. It's just cheap Hellblazer. Yeah. And he even wears a fucking skinny suit and tie. Well, you didn't care for the art. I was. I don't like Ben Templesmith's art. Indifferent I'm really to it. Sorry. But at that time, at that point, I hadn't realised the extent to which it was just going to be 18 interrogation scenes. The tropiest writer that ever troped. When he does it well, he does it very, very well. They're brilliant in global frequency. This is true. So, in summary then, there are lots of good comics about spies. Which there is are. kind of what we thought going in. My hypothesis, which sta- definitely a hypothesis, definitely requires scrutiny, is that there are good comics about spies that may not necessarily be what you would expect if you were told there were good spy comics. Loki, Agent of Asgard. For example. Yes, which uh, coincidentally was written by one of the writers of Trifecta. Mm. Um, there's definitely a thing there. Um, I mean, there's a ton of stuff. You can read Modesty Blaze and get someone doing spy work and shooting arrows at people. Um, the Coldest City, which is just clinical. I do need to read that. Um, Casanova, which is absolutely, utterly bonkers, um, but is wonderful for it. Um, you've got things like Sleeper by Ed Brubaker um, who is doing the thing that he normally does with noir noir and crime but for Mm -hmm. spies Um, Queen and Country Shield Mind Management and of course Spy vs. Spy (laughs) in which two Mm pointy-nosed things in fedoras just try and bomb one another and that's wonderful too I think it sits just off to one side from our (laughs) central spy comics but it would be it would be unfair not to mention it I'd love to do some actual work academic work on espionage fiction and flesh out the typology a bit because I've done it a poor disservice today well to be fair it is it is easier to sit and write write something for a couple of years and come up with a good bold central thesis than it is to talk for an hour while drinking English table wine 
Yes. I think... To be fair, it's easier to do a lot of things than it is to do blank while drinking English table wine. Given, given the conditions you are forced to slave away under, you've done a, you've done a remarkable job. And, and with that, I will say good night. Good night.